we have the power to choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world. And essentially what I'm saying is we have the power to choose which of these characters can we hook into at any moment, in an instant, you can you can become your left intellectual, or in an instant, you can become your right cognitive, open-hearted, collective thinking, or you can instantaneously become your unhappy little cr cr uh, uh, cranky self who didn't get his toy, or you can become right here, right now, happy, joyful, playful, explorative, what is, is, and I want to go jump in a mud puddle. You have the ability at any moment to choose which of those are, but the reason we don't do it is because we haven't, we haven't acknowledged or understood what are our choices. Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price and I'm your host. Welcome. I hope that you are feeling safe and as safe as you can and as healthy as you can. And if you're not, that you're getting the help you need. A couple of phrases I keep hearing are, we're all in this together and these are uncertain times. There's a lot of confusion on how to behave, certainly, but really how to understand what's happening. And if your inner world is anything like mine, I don't even think it's a, a polarity that's happening. It's a, it's a multiplicity of like a pinball game where I'm bouncing back and forth between all kinds of different thoughts every day from deeply connected to, to nervous and scared. Uh, and then foolish. And then sobered. So there's a lot going on. And I think that this conversation that I'm, that I had with Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor couldn't have come at a better time because she's, as you'll hear, I think provides a way for us to think about how we understand our world, uh, ourself and our world. So I won't belabor the point. I'll let her do the talking when we, uh, when we get to the conversation. But I want to introduce a couple of aspects of the podcast. First and foremost, the music that you heard at the beginning is from Hi-Fi Drowning. Old friends of mine in a band, the, the record is Rounds the Rosa. And I think you should buy the record. <laughs> it's really good. At the end of this conversation, I include the full song. Every episode has a little clip and then the full song from... Uh, from the uh, from the artist that I'm featuring, these two songs are the the very first song is Big Spring, and the last track is the Saints ID. So check that out. If you look in the notes on your listening platform, you'll find that I included both the link to Hi-Fi Drowning 
There's also a link to the theme music for the podcast, which is Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And the song that I use is called Clouds. Okay, so let's get to Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. First of all, I recommend that you watch her TED Talk. It's 18 minutes of your time, and I included a link to that TED Talk in the notes of this episode. So if you have the time, press pause on this, go to that, watch it. It will help in kind of understanding an evolution, because the TED Talk was from 2008. So I, I watched that like many did. And I was pretty blown away. And let me let me read you Dr. Taylor's bio, which you can find at drjilltaylor.com, D-R-J-I-L-L-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor is a trained and published neuroanatomist. Her research specialty was in the post-mortem investigation of the human brain as it relates to schizophrenia and severe mental illness. Because she has a brother who has been diagnosed with a brain disorder schizophrenia, Dr. Taylor served for three years on the board of directors of the National Alliance on Mental Illness between 1994 and 1997. Currently, she serves as the President Emeritus of the Greater Bloomington Affiliate. Because there's a long-term shortage of brain tissue donated for post-mortem research by individuals diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, Dr. Taylor travels as the national spokesperson for the mentally ill for Harvard Brain Tissue Resource Center, located at McLean Hospital. Dr. Taylor delivers a very popular keynote address titled, How to Get Your Brain to Do What You Want It to Do. But as irony would have it, on December 10, 1996, Dr. Taylor woke up to discover that she was experiencing a rare form of stroke, an arteriovenous malformation, AVM. Two and a half weeks later, on December 27, 1996, she underwent major brain surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital to remove a golf ball-sized blood clot that was placing pressure on the language centers in the left hemisphere of her brain. It took her eight years to successfully rebuild her brain from the inside out. In response to the swelling and trauma of the stroke, which placed pressure on her dominant left hemisphere, the functions of her right hemisphere blossomed. Among other things, she now creates and sells unique stained glass brains when commissioned to do so. In addition, she published a book about her recovery from the stroke and the insights she gained into the workings of her brain. It's a New York Times best-selling memoir, and it's titled My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey, and it's spent 17 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. In February of 2008, Dr. Taylor gave a presentation at the prestigious TED conference, a video presentation that was posted on the TED website, which was immediately viewed by millions of people around the world. The response to the video launched Dr. Taylor into becoming a highly sought after public speaker. She was chosen by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world for 2008 and was the premier guest on Oprah's Soul Series webcast. In addition, she was interviewed by Oprah and Dr. Oz on the Oprah Winfrey Show in October of 2008. And I think that it should be noted that I'm, she has one of the top five most viewed TED Talks of all time. I think on, on TED, there's about 26 million views. On YouTube, the 7 million, 6 or 7 million. And she is an absolutely lovely, engaging, fantastic human being that you know immediately. <laughs> you at least get a sense of immediately. So I feel honored that she said yes to my inquiry about participating in this podcast, The Sacred Speaks. And uh, I'm thankful, Jill. Thank you very much. 
like m- many of you, I think, uh, to speak, kind of referencing what Dr. Taylor would talk about, um, I notice my mind, my mind all over the place, but certainly into concern for um, the well-being of my family and uh, whether it's kind of financial health or wellness, um, physical health and wellness um, for my, my practice and for the people with whom I work. You know, and those concentric circles kind of broaden out. And interestingly enough, uh, this is this is rare, but but right now they are consistently broadening out to the entire worldwide community. And by rare, I mean that we just we just tend to focus on what's in front of us. I had this thought the other day when I was driving before all this news broke. It was just at the cusp of everything, and I was noticing how uh, I imagined the cars driving through the streets, each driver was thinking very similar thoughts to what I was thinking. And then I kind of broadened that out and thought, well, worldwide, we're all linked um, by our concerns and anxieties and hope, hope that we can weather the storm. I think this conversation is certainly one way to view how we individually and collectively suffer and can adapt and transform the kind of mode of our suffering into something broader and larger. And rather than staying in a state of panic, we can shift that into a state of creativity and innovation. And despite the uh, collective anxiety and this this trauma that we're sitting in the middle of, um, we can move through it in a way that um, is that we're changed. And I think, I think, and I hope we, we do, I hope we do change. So pay attention to what's happening and what you're being met with. There's this old Buddhist saying that when you, when you begin to focus mindfully, it's like putting a stick in a stagnant pond and swirling it around and all the gunk from the depths comes up to the surface. So I think as a psychotherapist and as a human being, I'm certainly seeing that, that all of our patterns and thoughts and behaviors that have become routine, we're getting to take a kind of a meta, meta view of what tends to uh, lurk inside of us, whether we're aware of it or not. So thank you so much for being here and spending the time here. My hope is that this conversation today inspires hope. I'm starting a series over the next few weeks where I'm going to be interviewing people, largely people that I've already interviewed, just to try to understand more of how they're thinking about this worldwide event. Uh, the next one, t- two that I've got lined up are Stuart Coffin, Kaufman, who is a, a biologist who studies chaos theory, and also Jeff Kripal, who's a professor of religious studies at Rice University. And w- when Jeff and I spoke, we were talking about how kind of we can mine religions and um, how to do that in a, in, a, in a healthy way and how to also avoid having the shadow side of religions um, hinder our capacity to really approach the, this event in a new way rather than being regressive. So I'm glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Um, this podcast is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative clinic that my wife and I opened in Houston, and I'm glad you're here, and uh, 
Interestingly enough, I'll be thinking about you all. I think we're all thinking about us all. (laughs) What a wild event. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to mine your information centers. if you, if you need to find information, don't go look at it in uh, the typical places where we let our minds just kind of uh, wander. F- find the right spaces. Okay, you'll be hearing from me again next week with an episode with Dr. Stuart Kaufman. But for now, I'm excited to bring you Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Dr. Taylor, thank you for your time. And thank you all for listening. For now, we'll leave it there. Oh my gosh. I, I, Everything Brian. I'm so excited to chat with you. Can we just get rolling? Is that okay if we just start? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, this is, I don't know if we'll include this, but this has got, this is a strange existence for you. I'm sure just like pop on zoom and here's some guy that you're going to talk to about meaningful things, hopefully. <laughs> to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I actually, I, I do a lot of interviewing, yeah. but this one is going to, one, be longer, and two, dig deeper into um, thought, uh, you know, just how, how does how do we take my little piece of what I have experienced and what I believe to be true and fit that into the bigger context of other thinkers? Yeah. And I've been listening to uh, uh, Eric Goodwin, yes. uh, your, your interview with Eric, and and it's interesting because the the subjects that he he leads up to and then purposefully lets go of is where I begin. Ah, so I think that I think that it'll be a very interesting conversation. That's so cool. I'm honored that you you listened to one of the conversations. Yeah, no, I try to get a sense of who you are and what you care about and what, because, because, you know, thought is an ever evolving concept for each one of us and we get insight and input from other places and then we grow with that. And then it's a matter of, okay, well, how do, because I see us each as like neurons in the consciousness of humanity. And so only by interconnecting with others, do we have the ability to grow our own network and really refine how we fit into the bigger picture and the role we play in, in the bigger structure of either a brain or of humanity. Well, I like the image and I think it's appropriate and it makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. Yeah, uh, it does. I'm, I'm just interested if we can kind of, gosh, I, I want to pick up there certainly where, where you're saying, you know, the threads that Eric and I were talking about that were maybe left to the side or not really going to, what, what does that mean to you? And that may be jumping in way too fast, too soon. I, I can tell you that when, when, by the time people listen to this, I will have already recommended that they not only read your book, but watch the TED Talk so that we don't have to tend to a lot of that stuff in this conversation. Good. Uh, I, Good. I, so with considering that that will be done for most people, um, and I'm sure that a lot of them have already actually seen the TED Talk. Uh, what do you mean by that? Those threads that we dropped, you, you, that's where you begin. So um, he made the comment. I took some notes. Um, you all were talking about, yeah, y'all were talking about consciousness yes. and role of the frontal lobe. And I didn't hear it mentioned because I didn't make it to the end because I just started it 
uh, about an hour ago, and that was a long interview yes. that you yeah. guys had. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wish I had the last half hour of that in my brain for this conversation, but I'm just going to go anyway. Go, yeah, go for um, it. Yeah, so one of the things, and I don't know if he mentions it later, but one of the reasons why the prefrontal cortex is so densely connected to everything else is because that's the neocortex. It's the most recently neuroanatomically added portion of the cortex. So if you think about the cortex and the brain over the cross of time and the evolution of, of those cells, you're going to continue to bring on new cellular structure that is going to advance the overall abilities of what's already there. It's going to refine the ability. And so for human, that's going to be our prefrontal cortex. It's the last part to be added on. And so it does integrate and connect with all the other pieces to bring it together as a collective whole, which we're now calling probably consciousness, which is a really huge possibility of what is consciousness and we won't even go there right so to me though there is consciousness beyond the awareness of self in relationship to the external world and i essentially when i experienced my stroke and it wiped out the left hemisphere thinking and limbic cells in spite of those being gone i was still a completely conscious human being I could not communicate with the external world. I could not share with you through language, but I was completely conscious. I was aware of myself. I was aware of my abilities. I was aware that I was different than I had been before. I didn't know what a mother was, but I could certainly learn what a mother was and I could experience everything. I just was no longer capable of communicating with the external world like we do as normal people. That does not mean I was not conscious. Just as my dog has the ability to have a relationship with me, to remember things, there's no question in our minds, really, that other animals have consciousness. So anyway, that's where I just kind of started. I'm so glad you started there, too, because I want to say that was my core question until about page 78, wherever you say, if you're asking the question, how do I remember all this, then here's your... So you, you actually pick up right there where most of the book, I'm sitting here going, okay, my God, I'm thinking about consciousness. And, you know, of course, we think of consciousness as I'm aware of something versus this larger question of what is consciousness, just yeah, it's not necessarily just right. awareness. So you're, I, I kind of wanted to jump. Would you explain all the, the, all the nuances of that? Because that really does get to my core question and then many others that will branch out in our neuronal network from the perspective of neuroanatomy. How does that function? The idea that I continue to have an eye, even though the area that is responsible for the eye is no longer as activated, uh, meaning from the language center. So do I have to have an eye in order to be conscious? Yeah, that's a good one. Because based on your question, you just said, I do. Now, under that criteria, no, I wasn't conscious. But I was very conscious. So first of all, I'm going to say I don't have to have an I to be conscious. I have a we. I am a living being in relationship to life around me, still having sensory experience, still having motor experience, still have information processing, still having awareness of myself in relationship to those things around me. I simply don't have an I. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor died that day. 
she was gone, but I still existed and I was still perfect and whole and beautiful just the way that I was and a lot happier than I had been because of the left limbic cells, which had recorded all the pain of my past life were completely offline. So I existed at a different at a different part of my consciousness. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like recovery. People say, uh, well, Jill, uh, how long did it take you to recover? And I say, well, recover what? Because recovery requires, are we talking about gross motor recovery? Are we talking refined motor recovery? Are we talking sensation recovery? Are we talking vestibular recovery? Are we talking language? Are we talking... Uh, um, an ability to place meaning on sound. I mean, there's a, all those different circuits are each needing to be recovered in order to perform that function. So recover what? And I think that the same thing goes for consciousness. Are we a conscious being and how much of our cellular structure can we get rid of and still be conscious beings? And I could wipe out a whole bunch of what was going on in my left hemisphere, and I was still a conscious being. And it's fascinating to me how, how many in the uh, neurological community would then define me as uh, brain damaged right. and looking at what I don't have in cellular structure now as opposed to looking at me and exploring and being curious about what have I gained in the absence of having those cells of my left brain that reached across that corpus callosum to inhibit what I now experience full, full force? And then what ability do I have as that full force right brain to relearn, use that consciousness to relearn and regain access to the circuitry in the opposite hemisphere once the acute trauma has been taken away, the inflammation has gone down, and now I have access to real engagement and recovery of circuitry with specific uh, functions. Well, so if we, uh, the, the image that's coming to mind right now is the, the something Jung talked about a lot, which is the kind of model of psyche. And I had that, how, how do you, this is such a broad question, you take it how you like, but how do you image or imagine the psyche and how does the brain, what role does the brain play in that equation? So um, I know you don't know because nobody does, um, but I'm uh, almost finishing book number two. Oh, good. And book number two is exactly this. This, um, this subject. This, this subject. Ooh, yes. All right. Good. You're, you're... Because there you go. So I can only say so much about this, yes. but I'll give you where I am with this. Um, when I when I was a completely fun, healthy, functioning, strong, whole brain person, I had everything was firing. I was artistic and creative. Uh, most of my youth, up until I was until I studied anatomy in college, I was actually what we would call more. Uh, more right brain that was more interested in the creative artistic processing. Uh, I was innovative. I was curious. I was creative. I was athletic. Uh, I was bright. Uh, but it wasn't until anatomy in, in college that I finally fell in love with a subject material where I actually cared about details. 
And I wanted to understand everything. I wanted to know every structure, every muscle, every bone, every relationship, uh, every group of brain cells, everything anatomical. For some reason, I, I wanted to know, because you know, I, I was watching a lot of forensic stuff on TV, and I wanted to know that if a knife came directly into my body at this angle right here, was this life-threatening? Now, I have no idea why I wanted to know that, but that's what I wanted to know. So then I spent my academic career building a three-dimensional image of the physical body and the physical brain structures, groups of cells, and everything. So I became, I was a gross anatomist and a neuroanatomist teaching and performing research at Harvard Medical School in the department of uh, dentists. It was my thing. I love Cadaver Lab. It's so beautiful. Um, and I love neuroanatomy because it's fascinating. So by the time I had my experience with a hemorrhage, over the course of those four hours, I think anatomically, I think cellularly. My pictures of teaching neuroanatomy to the students is pathways and what goes where and who's communicating with whom. And just this three-dimensional understanding at a cellular level of what am I as a living being? And then I have this amazing experience where my left brain cells start shutting down one at a time over the course of four hours to the point where I cannot walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my, my past. But that didn't mean I was an unconscious personality. I only lost half of myself. What half did I have? I still had the emotional ability to experience the present moment right here, right now. And I still had my right cognitive mind that was capable of looking at the big picture of everything. Because without those cells in the left brain in my parietal region that define the boundaries of where I begin and where I end, I became as big as the universe. And as I became big as the universe, I had a consciousness of the collective whole, which granted is very separate and different than the consciousness of the left brain, but I was still a completely conscious individual. Mm -hmm. So my situation, I ended up having half this brain, uh, surgeons go in, they remove a blood clot the size of a golf ball that is pushing between the two centers of my language centers. So inflammation eventually goes down and I'm looking at myself going, okay, uh, how do I use what I have? And how do I use what I know to rebuild the skill sets, reclaim the skill sets of the different groups of cells of my left hemisphere that are quite specific? I lost some very specific abilities. I still had the right hemisphere skill set, but I lost the left brain skill set. So circuit by circuit, I had the ability to look at what can I do, what can I not do, what is the obstacle between me getting, reattaining that ability, and what are the steps I need to take in order to reopen those groups of clusters of cells that perform specific functions? With me? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, okay. And keep, keep, going, keep going, keep going. No, go for okay. it. We'll pick up. Okay, so what I learned was that I had two groups of cells. I was still right emotional and right cognitive thinking. These are groups of cells. 
And what I lost were the groups of cells of the left hemisphere. I lost the group of cells of my limbic system, which are highly densely integrated and serve a very specific purpose. And I lost the cells of my higher thinking left brain, which are also very interconnected with very specific clusters of cells doing certain skill sets. And what I learned was that, first of all, most people don't think about the fact that we have two emotional brains. We have two very different systems in each of the two hemispheres that are complementary mm -hmm. and the same, but completely separate in the information they're processing and how they process that information. So if we have two very distinctive emotional systems and we have two very distinctive cognitive minds, I still had two and I had to do something about those left. And what I realized was that the character of my left emotional brain, she died that day. And I lost 37 years of emotional baggage and all the pain of my past in any fear of the future. She died, she was gone. She didn't exist for me anymore. And my left cognitive thinking brain, she was a whole different character too. And when I hooked into rebuilding those skill sets, that personality actually wanted to come back online and become dominant in my brain again. And I didn't want that. I didn't want her value structure, I wanted her skill set. I wanted her tools. And so for me, I'm a firm believer that each of the archetypes, Jungian's archetypes, reflect these different groups of cells neuroanatomically. Yeah. And that the reason why these are a part of our collective consciousness is because they're in all of us at a fundamental cellular level. Well, which is oftentimes, that's that's one of the great things about that conversation with Eric Goodwin is that we were really kind of reappropriating some of these kind of ungrounded aspects of psychology that can be ungrounded, but kind of reconnecting those with its biological empirical origin. And that that exactly. I, I really like that folks are, are really mining through this right now and trying to kind of connect that, which is, of course, the core of your work is is connecting these two principles that are Exactly. Uh, and in the Jungian community, a lot of times we're talking about Eros and Logos, you know, and which are the aspects of the, the principles that can be divided into hemispheres, of course, with logic and then kind of the more right brain, kind of wild, ungrounded, uncontained. Chaos. So what's so fascinating about, I mean, you have the subjective experience. I mean, uh, here I am, like reading your book, saying, "Okay, there's the neuroanatomist," and then in the next section, well, it's like an acid trip. And you're—I mean, you're using language that, that most scientists are like, "Ah, oh, that's not—that's not okay." <laughs> but you're moving really freely between these worlds, which to talk yeah. to somebody who's—and I get—I said this earlier in preparation for us talking. I, I say, you know what's fascinating? Somebody takes an acid, uh, you know, a, a trip of acid, and they're they're out for eight to 12 hours. But what you're doing is you're toggling back and forth through this. Yes. On the morning of the stroke, I am. Right. The more, which, which to me sets up a very interesting intersubjective experience that you can draw from for the rest of your life, which I think is what you're really getting into here, that you have this 
experience to pull from, not just some kind of intellectual understanding of something. Well, but beyond that, I didn't have an eight or 10, year, 10 day trip. I had, or hour trip. I had an eight year trip. Right. And I didn't just have an eight year trip. I had an experience that whacked me into an extreme. And then I had to consciously, purposefully rebuild my brain circuit by circuit by through the eyes of a neuroanatomist. This is not a high trip. Yeah. And why, why, and, and, you know, part of this is, and this I think gets to a really important point in that the acid trip isn't just an acid trip. An acid trip is inhibiting certain circuitry inside of your brain so that other circuitry inside of another part of your brain can have the dominant experience. So we are wired in order to have that experience and the acid is the tool that people use in order to access that circuitry. So that's just saying it's still inside of your brain, it's still circuitry and you can't look at consciousness and the overall of a human being and not include all of it. You can't pick and choose which pieces of the puzzle work for you. You have to look at the whole. And so this experience gave me an insight into what is it like to be that and what is it like what was missing and what could I do consciously through what I retained in order to rebuild what I had lost? And in that process, what have I learned about what that was that I had to rebuild? And this is, this is you know, I'm 20 years post-stroke now. This is uh, 10 years post my stroke of insight, the book. Uh-huh. And this is the progression because at the end of my TED Talk, Um, I said, um, uh, we have the power to choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world. And essentially what I'm saying is we have the power to choose which of these characters can we hook into at any moment, in an instant, you can you can become your left intellectual or in an instant you can become your right cognitive, open-hearted, collective thinking, or you can instantaneously become your unhappy little uh, cranky self who didn't get his toy, or you can become right here, right now, happy, joyful, playful, explorative, what is, is, and I want to go jump in a mud puddle. You have (laughs) the ability at any moment to choose which of those are, but the reason we don't do it is because we haven't very, we haven't acknowledged or understood what are our choices. So I've had thousands, hundreds of thousands of people come to me and say, okay, Jill, at the end of your TED Talk, you say, we have the power to choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world. How do I do that? You yes. can do it because you had this experience forced upon you, and then you had to spend this this process of time becoming intimate with all of those characters. Well, who who are the characters inside of me I have to choose from? And it took it ju- it took this long for me to be able to figure out how do I verbalize that mm-hmm. because I came from the right collective whole into the specific detail. How do I help the specific detail person understand the collective whole? And that's been my challenge, but I'm there. Well, I'm hooked. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm ready. Uh, you know, I I'm, I'm all ears because I look, Jill. I'm th- I'm thinking about like 
everybody I work with as a psychotherapist, right? I sit with, I mean, I had this conversation earlier today, right? Somebody yeah. says, I, I don't even understand, and, uh, me, all of us, right? I don't un understand how to respond, that there's even an option to respond differently to that. Yes. Like that's, and so the, my typical yes. thing that I talk about to folks is like, okay, look, you know, our, we're adaptive beings, you know, yes. the, the, these adaptations, we are incredibly good at adapting. We, yeah. we, we grow up in a family of origin, in a culture, in, at a particular time and space. And there are, you know, from the sensory to the cognitive, to the feeling, to the spiritual parts of ourselves that are saying, how do I make it in this world? And right. if, if I need to be held and my caregivers are bristly every time I ask to be held, I shut that part down or I, I, I so, so what then happens is through our development, we, we are forming our, uh, our understanding of how the world works. And then we tend to live that out. Right. right. And what you're saying is that, which is often the case, as you know, I'm, you know, reading all this stuff. It, it, a mystical experience can oftentimes be linked up with some kind of trauma. And there, yeah. there, there tends to be a trauma. And I think that part of that, I'd love to hear what you'd say about this, that part of that is about this disruption of the subjective states of view, the disruption of these adaptations that have somebody then going, oh shit, it's different than what I presumed it to be. So I want to lob yeah. that out and see what you say with that. So... Um I believe that um, I believe that we have four very distinctively different characters inside of us, neuroanatomically programmed to have certain characteristics in common with itself. So, like your left thinking brain, anybody has a lesion to their left thinking brain, it wipes out their language, it right wipes out their ability to organize and categorize. Well, it, 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 it's a part of our brain that's very mechanical, it knows how to fix things. Okay, so, so I know when I go upstairs into my office, I call that character Helen. And Helen comes online and she goes to work and she gets the job done. And I call her Helen, hell on wheels. She gets it done. And she is a personality in me. Anybody calls during that period of time, they can instantly tell if they know me that Helen has just answered the phone and I'm not warm and fuzzy. And I inquire, what can I do for you? And they will usually say, why don't you call me this evening? after you're done working and i'll say great and so helen stays focused she gets the job done she doesn't like to be interrupted so she's kind of um, uh non-affective she's just get she's disciplined and organized and she does her duty she focuses really well so that's helen and she's predictable we all have that character inside of ourselves we all have all four groups of cells we all have a Helen. And you know what it feels like when your Helen comes out. And I encourage you to name that part of yourself. Right. So then also in the left brain, the left brain has an emotional system that is when, when information comes in from the sensory systems and it goes to the two limbic systems. So I mean, I'm going to call them, they're one, but they're really separate. You have two amygdala, two hippocampi, right. two anterior cingulate gyrus, two limbic systems that are separate. Of course, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when the information comes into the left amygdala, it refers to all the information that I've ever had. So it goes into my past and it says, is this scary or am I safe? So the left emotional system is biologically programmed to compare itself to the past. 
All right. So any of your fears that come in from your past experiences are going to be processed right there first. I know what it feels like when I move into my fear. I know what it feels like when I'm having a conversation with somebody that I have an intimate relationship with. And all of a sudden I get totally pissed off and I move into this and I move into this character and I hold my body a certain way and I growl with a certain voice and, and I'm nipping like a chewing on a bone. And, and, you know, I mean, there's a little personality and I feel it. And it's like, how do I get myself out of this character and how do I use my other characters in order to rescue me from that little uh, uh, hurt and fearful and angry and sad and uh, self-loathing and arrogant and blaming part of my character. That's a group of cells. You wipe out those cells and you just don't experience those things anymore. You have to have you, they, you have, in order to feel guilt, you feel about something that has happened in the past. We feel guilty about something we have done. We feel shame over something in the past. We have all these emotions that relate to the past. We also have some emotions that relate to the right here, right now of the right here, right now, right hemisphere limbic cells, and then the right hemisphere overall picture, which kind of anchors us into our ability to connect to something that is greater than ourselves. And it is in that connecting to something that is greater than ourselves, which is actually biologically right there in your right hem- right, your right cognitive brain, those cells allow us to experience, or is that, uh, uh, something that the, the, our own divinity or a relationship with something else that is, we would consider divine. Every ability we have, we have because we have cells that are performing that function. So then I just got the big old neuroanatomical lesson in Jill. Since you know this as an expert at Harvard, we're going to wipe out half your hemisphere, let you rebuild your brain and see what you learn. And to me, it's very simple. It's very easy. It's very, it fits into every thought process there is. And when I realized that, that it was because I had, I had studied young archetypes, you know, pre-stroke, mm-hmm. but when I lost my left hemisphere, I lost all that information. And then when I was listening to a, a audio book and they were talking about the archetypes, it was like, boom, 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 boom. They all land perfectly right on these four characters inside of our brain. So why wouldn't it be a part of the collective whole of humanity and of nature and that's the what the, nature. the seed that i because i want to come back to this because um you mentioned divinity and i want to take the opportunity to go down that rabbit trail with you but yeah. for now let's let's continue i'm, I'm curious about you know, you know whether it's your four or uh, or just four in general so we've yeah. got the uh what 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 have we got here so I can't go into this. I wish I could. You mm-hmm. got me. You know, I'm, I'll be <laughs> you're, done you're, with this. You're not baked yet. My you're publisher not... <laughs> will kill me. That's I mean, all right. I, I, I'm already like, mm, yeah. I'm on the edge. Yes. So I can't give you my book two material. But all I can <laughs> say to you is that we have two. And, you know, I didn't realize um, how to communicate this until I keynote, I keynote a lot for all, all different kinds of groups. Um, and I realized that I would go out and I would talk about the neuroanatomy of what we are as living beings. Um, and I would say 
somewhere pretty early on that we have two amygdala. Everybody these days knows we have an amygdala. Isn't that fantastic? That was not the truth 25 years ago. When I first started, uh, at, when I was at the Harvard Brain Bank, going out talking to audiences about the brain, people didn't even want to talk about the brain in those days. And now everybody wants to talk back about the brain. But people don't realize that we have two amygdala and two hippocampi. And what that means is that we have two separate structures. They process similar information, but in different ways. And the limbic system, as you probably know, the way that evolution of the mammalian nervous system tends to work is the addition, once all the kinks get worked out inside of a system, in order to evolve into a new species or to evolve a species beyond itself, you add new tissue on top and then you start working the relationship between the newly added on tissue with the tissue below. Right. So essentially what we're doing as human beings is we have added on the higher cerebral cortical thinking cells above on top of those two limbic emotional systems that are different and separate. And so the tissue above the above the limbic cells are those higher cognitive minds now and they are are they evolve to refine the tissue below, mm -hmm. which means the right and the left cerebral cortices are very different from one another as represented by how different the right and left limbic groups of cells are. And then as you look at us as a society, we have that magnificent corpus callosum of 300 million axonal fibers so that the two hemispheres know what's going on inside. But most of those cells are inhibitory. Most of those axons are inhibiting the comparable group of cells in the opposite hemisphere. So you always have things going on in both hemispheres. In this moment, you're, everything's being fired inside of your brain specifically, but there, there's, there's inhibition and there's dominance going on at any moment in time. So we end up, up with these two cognitive minds and what we're doing right now, because we already have the tissue, is we're trying to work the kinks out between what's going on in our two cognitive minds and the two emotional minds below, because that's the newly added on tissue for humanity. But now we also have to create some, some understanding and a healthy relationship of efficiency between the two, the two hemispheres completely, the two cognitive minds. And when you look at the value structure of these two cognitive minds, boy, you really got me going, didn't you? When you look at these, when you look at the value structure of these two cognitive minds, they're completely opposite from one another. Yes. The left brain is looking at the external, using the external sources for my value. How much money do I have? How big is my house? Uh, how perfect are my children? How am I educated? Versus the right hemisphere, which looks at the collective whole and says, how does your business actually, what actions are you taking to help the planet? What, do you, what are you doing in order to decrease your carbon footprint so that we can do something Something about global warming. I mean, we're looking at these two very different groups of cells with completely opposite uh, value structures. And we're just trying to find peace in our heads and no wonder there's no peace anywhere. Uh, it's, it's hard not to make the political you know, analogy there. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so we see one, one uh, just to say this explicitly, what we see, and not to reduce it either, but 
um, what we see are is some degree of neuroanatomical phenomenology that plays itself out interpersonally, relationally, imagistically, in, intersubjectively, and politically, and economically, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And so so it's, we're, we're essentially saying that there are ways that human beings act, feel, behave, and also then reflect on our experience. And what you're looking at is the origin of that being our neuroanatomical structures and looking yeah. at how those correlate with both our phenomenological experience and, you know, the way those things play out in the kind of larger collective. Yeah. What, which, so, so you've mentioned divinity earlier. What I'm curious about is, of course, one, one, one way of, of orienting oneself to that, which I just said, is, okay, the brain is a closed system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, therefore it creates consciousness. So we've got the philosophy of kind of neural correlates of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But what is consciousness made up of? Dead yeah, people? So, Do people have consciousness? Yeah, I want you to riff on that for a second. Okay, well, it, okay. I mean, it, it, you, you, I mean, you have to look beyond the left brain's ability to perform the scientific method. The scientific method, by definition, is a method that needs to be linearly and it needs to be repeatable. And that's great because the left brain is linear and it is repeatable, but we're more than a left brain. We're not an automated robot system. We have a right hemisphere, which is more of a holistic machine that looks, that doesn't separate me from the boundaries around me. So to my left brain, I'm an individual and I'm separate. And so I can go and I can measure everything else and look at how they're separate from one another and see how they fit together like a puzzle, like a machine. But we're biological systems. Biological systems are, are uh, a three-dimensional mass of life. And life has to have, oh my God, energy. And what is the power of the energy? And what is the actual content of energy? And oh my God, you know, I mean, when I was growing up as a scientist, the two words that were absolutely taboo <laughs> were energy and consciousness. Yes. You won't find it in the, you will not find anything about it, either of those unless you're talking about the energy created by uh, the mitochondria and the ATP mo molecule. Yeah. Forget it. All right. So, um, uh, so we didn't talk about it and we didn't talk about it for what, 50, 60 years. But we did talk about it around the lunch table because just about every neuroscientist I knew went into neuroscience because they were fascinated with energy and consciousness. We just couldn't talk about it as a collective professional because it's not, doesn't fit into the left brain thinking of the scientific method. And so we all had to really stay, okay, well, what can we do with this? And even though this is what we want to know more about, so how can we kind of slyly or inadvertently contribute to the overall and we really couldn't succeed at that until functional imaging came along. And then we had the ability to do studies that looked at, like, I love uh, Andy Newberg's uh, work on um, how, do we, how, to, how to find God um, uh, from a neurobiological perspective using spec machines and uh, uh, people. Um, do you know his work? 
I don't. He's wonderful. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, How to Find God is one of his books. Um, but he used spec machines, and he put the nuns in and had them move into prayer. Uh, and he had monks go in and had them go into deep meditation uh-huh. and looked at what was actually happening at a biological. And what he identified, we were all expecting there to be a God center to show up in the brain somewhere. But what he found was that it actually quieted the cells of the left brain, shutting down its inhibition over the cells of the right brain so that you could actually experience God or a divine connection through those cells of the right hemisphere. And as a stroke survivor and um, the author of my stroke of insight, I get emails upon emails upon emails from stroke survivors. And so many of them have said, I had the exact opposite experience from you. I had a problem with my, with my right hemisphere and now I cannot find God. I cannot find that feeling that I am connected to something bigger than me. And I am caught up in my own detail and uh, dissatisfaction and I've become rigid and uh, my poor kids because I'm just really critical of everything. And that's a huge population of people who are, are in search of how do I regain that feeling of connected to something bigger than I am so that I can, I can find my own personal peace. Oh, my heart goes out. Cause that, I know. well, how do you make sense of that closed system component? You know, I guess here's my, here's my, here's my left. How do you define God? Right. Well, and I'm going to, I'm going to go back to your closed system because I don't see the system as closed. Yeah. I see the system as, as long as you have energy. I mean, the difference between being alive and being dead really is there's energy in there making all the, the cells work. I mean, the cell is not just an energy machine, but it is, it is life. Life is this three dimensional collection of stimulation and expression and experience and and all of it i mean it's a very complicated thing but it doesn't function without energy and so energy is fueled by the external world it has to get nutrition it has to get uh it has to have an interaction it it needs to be stimulated in order to be able to respond so i don't see it as a closed system i think the left brain says yes it's a closed system but my right hemisphere is really really clear that without that group of cells right there that define that the boundaries of where I begin and where I end, I am really clear. I'm an energy being in relationship with all the energy all around me. And that's why I can influence what's going on on the other side of the planet with my thoughts and my emotions as focused vibration. Now we're really getting out there, but it's true in frequency and vibration. And how do we interact with all of that, which is really larger than that tiny group of cells that if you wipe those out, you don't know where you begin and you end and you are as big as the universe and a part of the collective whole. And on top of it, Oh my God, as a normal human being, you can tap into that part of who you are and still, Still have this amazing left brain, this amazing left brain body, the definition of what I am as a single, and interact with it and move things around in the external world 
consciously choosing. I mean, we are amazing. And we're so much more amazing than what just the little left brain defines us as. But it sure is dominant out there in culture and the world, isn't it? I mean, that the way we're defining it right it now, it's every, it's everywhere. If anything, it's it's ubiquitous and it's it's got a, it a larger purchase in our life experience than these. Uh, I mean, even your joke about getting out there, you know, there's that there's that kind of I don't know the judgment about being able to freely use terms like vi- frequency right. and all that. So yeah. I, I had this thought as you were talking about um, your kind of where you sit. You know we'll talk about it, but we'll talk about why. But yeah. you keep going. You well, keep going. I, I'm worried. I'm worried if we t- take us off there too much. I'll write down my question. You you go into the why. Yeah. Okay, so in order for us to be able to, we have a basic construct and we learn as human beings. And our society has decided that as an, at an educational level, we care about training the left brain skill sets so that we can function well in the external world. And over time, that part of our, our educational system has dominated because as a society, we have to be able to train our people over decades to necessarily, not necessarily think, but to perform. Because we moved into an industrial res- revolution where right. manufacturing comes in and we have to have bodies in order to just perform mindless jobs. We don't want you thinking when you're out there being an automated. You just need to go out and do your work and then come out at the end of the day, get your paycheck. And so we all shift into an educational system that values all those tools of the external world. And what's the first thing on the chopping block in our educational system for the last 30 or 40 years? Yeah, the arts. Arts, um, uh, any of the arts, music, including physical activity. Right. So you so so we have pushed ourselves into the confines of that structure and in that left hemisphere is a group of cells that say I am an individual. I am separate from you. I am separate from people around me. I am an individual with unique interests and unique lives, uh, likes. And in order for me to become a part of the collective thinking, I have to put me down and lay down the my uh, my focus on me as the most important thing in the universe, me the ego, and step outside of that into the me as a part of a collective thinking. And it is automatic for that left brain to fight like hell to maintain its individuality and its right to be what it is and its right to be right. It's a right, wrong, uh, good, bad, zero sum system where if I win, you lose. And that's what the left brain is about. And that's what we've become as a society. And then you look at how skewed we are and you look at 
where's peace? Where do we find our deep inner peace? Well, peace is just thought away. All you got to do is get out of your own pain, get out of your own ego, get out of your own self, come back into the fact of gratitude of, oh my gosh, I'm a living being and connected to, to the overall. And I am a part of the overall. And I have a consciousness inside of me that allows me to connect to everything that is greater than me, the little individual. And all of a sudden I can breathe again. I feel it. <laughs> I, I yeah, it, it's liberating. Yeah. You know, it is completely liberating. We have the power to choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world. We have the power to lay down our pain load. We have the ability to get out of the automation of what we are. We have the ability to shift into the right here, right now, present moment at any moment in time go into nature or go wherever, be present, be present. The left hemisphere is somewhere other than right here, right now. It is doing this massive, cognitive, amazing calculation and deduction and judgment. It has to critically judge in order to be able to dig down into those details the way that it does. And that's not a bad thing. I am in no way criticizing the skill set of the left brain. Trust me, I know what it is like to live without that. And we become completely non-functional human beings. But in the, in the addition to that, we have the ability to lay that down and come to the present moment, breathe deeply, bring our consciousness back to what am I as a biological creature, which is why it's a billion dollar industry for meditation and yoga, mm -hmm. because people are trying to figure out how do I lay my left hemisphere down in order to evolve and, and, and be emancipated into the other half of what I already am. Well, it seems that without some kind of trauma culturally on some level, we're going to struggle to shift that because there's something that gets so routine about these adaptations to the outer world, for lack of a better phrase, like it, it takes on, um, it takes on an energy, our obligations, our needs, our understanding, our self-worth, you know, certainly if my ability to produce is, is connected with my ability to feel worthy then that's a, that's a certain secondary reinforcer and motivation there that's pretty hard to break. So, yeah. And I'm going to argue that that's a trauma. That alone is a trauma to myself because it's all about what I do instead of who I am or what I am. And to me, I think that that's trauma to the self of what we are. If, I, if I'm just being judged, the value of what I am or who I am as a living being is reduced to my output of what I do in a society that all it cares about is what I do, not who I am. How on earth am I ever going to find peace at the level of the essence of me in relationship to the essence of life? I think that that's the trauma. I don't think we have to have a bigger trauma than that. To me, the trauma is, um, think about it, when you're born, as soon as we're born, here we are, we're in this beautiful womb, we've got symbiosis going on, we're breathing water, we're hearing the heartbeat of our mother, we're absolutely, completely inside, we are a part of something, and then bam! We get ejected out into a world where we are now bombarded on our sensory system. The light is burning to our eyes because we can't, we have zero order going on at this level. You can't 
create a biological system to respond to the external stimulation until it has a relationship with that stimulation. But now we're dealing with light that burns the brain like wildfire. We've got sounds that are noise. We no longer have that muffled environment of mama and the liquid around us. So we've got sound to deal with. We're being poked and prodded. Dear Lord, we're probably getting little, you know, they're sticking something in our throats so that we can, can, you know, get the water out of ourselves. And, oh, my God, our lungs have to inflate. And what do we do? We wail. To me, that is the trauma. That is the separation of us as individuals away from the greater symbiotic from what we've known. And from that moment forward, we come in as as this blob of disconnection. A lot of it is working, so it is connected. And our emotional system is more or less online because it needs to be. I need to be able to wail and be angry and and create noise and information to my environment so they know what my needs are because I'm 100% dependent. So my emotional system needs to be somewhat developed, but my cognitive mind is not. And that's why the cells of the limbic system are fairly well developed and interconnected by the time we're born as compared to the higher cognitive mind of our cerebral cortex, which comes on with experience. And I'm glad you said that because it brings up something from your book that I thought was that I I, I hadn't anticipated thinking through, which was your experience of caregivers in the hospital post-stroke. And Mm -hmm. you you spend a lot of time tending to who was depleting your energy and who was filling you up. And you've just made that, I mean, because it was another develop, you were infant again, you know, you were this, you know, a, a little girl in a grown woman's body saying... How do I how do I adapt? Um, yeah. You you know a hell of a lot more than an infant though, but maybe not. I don't know. I I, I don't know what it's like to be an infant. So I was a newborn. I was a newborn. I knew nothing about the external world other than the ability to observe it and experience it. Okay, go there. Let's let's get into that. Oh, well. You know, I mean, it's this, this is one of the the interesting things to me about the stroke is. Um, oh my God, what a gift this has been to my life. Um, all the pain in my past was instantly gone. Um, my knowledge went with it. It was a fair price to pay. (laughs) Uh, you wouldn't think that of a, of a Harvard trained neuroscientist. Um, but you know, that was a long ladder to fall off of. And, but to be able to shift into a complete dis, um, lack of awareness of the detail of the external world, but to be alive. To me, I just moved into this incredible experience of gratitude that I did not die that day. And I mean, I was literally within moments, within minutes of mm-hmm. death when I finally arrived at the, uh, the emergency room at Mass General. And, um, and, uh, you know, it sounds horrible, but it was horrible for everyone else because I had experienced this incredible trauma and I just lost my mind. And that meant my whole life was just, you know, ruined or whatever. But for me, I lost all of that left brain, uh, value structure. And it just brought me right back home to, I'm alive. 
I am alive. I'm a living being with eyes that it doesn't matter that I don't understand anything outside of myself or that I can even discern the boundaries of a, of a picture frame on the wall. I was experiencing vision. I was bringing in, in stimulation that was a complete shift in the level of perception and life from being dead. I mean, I was, I wasn't dead. I was still alive at this fundamental energy experiencing. And I felt incredible gratitude for even if I did die, it was okay because I knew the gift that I had had as being life. And I knew that some of the cells in my left brain were gone because that was, I was in a completely different form of consciousness. And, but it was good. It was pure and it was beautiful. And I was co connected to this incredible sense of peacefulness that feels like liquid love. I mean, it's corny, but it's true. It's like waking up in liquid love and just being that. And to know that in the absence of all this detail, detail, take me and separate me from that. In the absence of that separation, that's all that is there. At least that's all that was there for me. And when you look at people who are dying or in palliative care um, and hospice care, there's this incredible sense for many, not all, of course, there's this incredible sense of peacefulness that flushes over us because in the absence of all that stress circuitry of my left hemisphere that pumps me with, with this go, 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 in the absence of that, when you become the collective whole, there's just... There's a knowingness that, that all those details aren't what matters. What matters is how do I bring this experience and this gratitude of life and love into my experience of being a living human? And our society is so far away from that concept that all, all we can do is love them. <laughs> I mean, it sounds bizarre, but it, I learned that it is our number one job as human beings to love one another. And it doesn't matter what you look like or what your politics are or what our differences are. Our similarities are 99.99%. And that's what my heart and our heart of consciousness focuses on. It's about, we have incredibly little diversity between us as human beings. Most of us look pretty much like a human and it has its own definition of cellular structure. And yet there's a group of cells in the left hemisphere that focuses on the differences and defines those differences as bad and wrong and scary. Mm -hmm. You don't look familiar. You don't sound familiar. You don't smell familiar because of the kinds of, of spices that you eat. And so therefore you're different from me and I'm afraid of you instead of the right hemisphere that wants to come in and said, could I have some of those spices? <laughs> they smell yummy. You know, yes, two very different ways of being inside of each one of us. And we have the ability to access that. That left thing is powerful and strong. And, you know, it, it, seeing it and, and hearing it this way, it's just where do we look where it's not? You know, that exactly. is such a dominant mode of behaving and being in the world. And it's so totally reinforced by that 
you know, if it's all out there, and so that adaptable part of me that's saying, how should I, you know, make it in the world? Well, that's how I make it in the world. I continue this really uh, trauma, you know, to, to engage in the trauma. It's like we've all got Stockholm Syndrome, and we're, you know, uh, clinging to our captor and saying, you know, great, when are you going to feed me and make me f- feel okay right. about life, not realizing we're in a prison? I mean, that's bleak. Right. It's, I don't mean to sound so cynical, but it's, it seems it, like it that's is. kind of what we're up against. Yes. Well, and this is your area of specialty because you're a psychoanalyst. So, right? I'm right. So yes, I'm a psychotherapist. Thing, yeah. Right. So you're a psychotherapist. So there's a great book by uh, Frederick Schiffer. Are you familiar with Frederick Schiffer? I don't know it. He's a, he's a, he's a psychiatrist at uh, McLean Hospital mm-hmm. in the Harvard system. And he wrote a book called Of Two Minds. And he uses some pretty unconventional, the left-brainers don't like it at all, tools in order to help people identify the two very different characters inside of each of the two different hemispheres. Because inside of the hemispheres, most of the fibers are going front to back, and you can actually use light to stimulate the occipital region of a particular hemisphere. And then it lights up, the, it really sets on fire that, that whole hemisphere. And that hemisphere has, has a character. I argue that it has two. I haven't had a conversation with him about it yet, but I'm sure one day we will. Uh, same thing for the opposite hemisphere. So he actually uses light in order to help his patients recognize these two very different characters inside of themselves and recognizes that one character is generally healthier than the other. One's less mature. And we get in trouble when all of a sudden it's like, you know, you have a kid and he's going to school and everything's fine and he's gotten into Harvard and he had to be pretty smart in order to get that and everything's going great. And then after, you know, a while, a couple of months in the system, he starts showing signs of severe mental illness and he can't, he can't function. He can't concentrate. He, he can't perform. And it's because this other part of him has come online, all the self-doubt, the lack of worthiness, the emotional pains from the past and his relationships with his parents and, mm-hmm. and all of that starts becoming the dominant and the self-doubt. And because now he's, he's on a busy schedule. He's got high stress going on. He has to perform, which is very different than when he was in high school. And he could, you know, get by with minimal study because he was a really bright kid. And he was interested and he was curious. So, so now you got this left hemisphere that has to perform. And it's a very different experience than what I do for fun. Um, and it's a very interesting book. And he really got me thinking on... Um, where he takes it is on the mental health, uh, how we are as mental health, and how can we influence ourselves. And essentially, it's by calling on a different one of our the different characters inside of our brain to actually become aware of and to be self nurturing. Oh, mm-hmm. my God, what mm-hmm. a concept. I have the ability to nurture and soothe myself, I can regulate myself by hooking into a part of myself that is healthy and strong in order to nurture and create a safe environment for the part of me that is not well and um, put you out of business. Wouldn't that be lovely? Fantastic. I would go play in the field and uh, sing music all day. (laughs) Exactly. 
And so would that person who's experiencing all that emotional distress. And if they allow themselves to realize that what they're feeling is a group of cells, every ability we have, we have because we have cells performing that function. So if I'm miserable and I'm I'm doubting my self-worth and I'm hostile and angry and I'm doing this, that, and the other, it's a group of cells that are just kind of self-perpetuating these loops. And it's like, okay, well, what happens when the telephone rings? You know, so let's say you and I are sweethearts and we're in this major fight and da, 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 and you're rah, 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 and I'm da, 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 and you're rah, 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 and then the phone rings, right? What happens? So I pick up the phone and I say, hello, <laughs> how did I do that? What part of me had the capacity to look at you like, don't go anywhere because I'm not done with you, but I could bring myself into a present moment experience and run a completely different circuit inside of me that is peaceful and content and working. And then when I hang up, that's the moment that I do my work. It's in that moment that I have the power to choose who and how I want to be. And I can stay that person that I had become. And thank goodness I got myself up and out of that other circuitry. Or I can come right back and finish where I left off with you because we weren't done with that fight. That's a choice. And I think it's then a matter of, well, what is our choice? Who do we get to, who's in there? Who do we get to pick from? How, what does it feel like in my body? How do I purposefully become that in those moments when I need to get myself up and out of that, that wounding of self and of others, that, that, that emotional brain that is just hostile and in pain and in total fear. Well, that's the, so that we are, beginning to understand that we literally are a multiplicity. Yes. You know, we've said we that, you know, what you're saying is, again, linking this to the biology is that, you know, we've said that of a pantheon of the inner world, you know, that's uh, uh, King Arthur's round table. You know, we've got all these uh, participants that are kind of queuing yeah. in, but literally that's happening, that there are structural aspects of our, our neurobiology yeah. that correlates these personalities. And yes. that they fight. Yes. And they like each other and hate each other and critique each other yes. and judge each other. And that can yes. be when, when, but when you have the psychology of an individualist that says, you know, I am sovereign and um, right. I, I, I am free to operate in the world. And most importantly, I am one. Mm-hmm. That creates an enormous conflict because the, the way in which I'm even viewing myself is singular mm-hmm. as opposed to multiple. Mm-hmm. And you have cells that are telling you exactly that. I mean, we have to be singular in order to have an ego. Right. And we have to be singular in order to be functional in the external world. We're not the Borg. We're not the Borg. I'm sure you know what the Borg right, are. Yes. We're not the, we're not the Borg yes. who have this collective consciousness and we're all thinking the same thing and we're all acting toward the same thing. No, I'm a single individual and I am a member of the Borg. Yes. I'm all of it. You're all of it. You have two very different hemispheres processing information in very different ways. 
And the cellular structure of the left brain wants to go from many to fewer to fewer to fewer to be able to help us create boundary, to create delineation, to create specific, to create detail, while the right brain does the exact, exact opposite. It's open to possibility. It busts out of categories. It's a collective whole. Get rid of that little group of cells in my left brain, and I don't even perceive myself as a single solid separate from you, but I'm as big as the universe, and I have those abilities to be able to influence my world. So, so you know, there's a wonderful book by uh, uh, Ian, Ian Mc, Mc, Ian, what's his name? It'll come to me. Um, but he's a, a psychiatrist in um, the UK who wrote about the master and his emissary. And it's about the two hemispheres inside of the brain mm. and the two separate consciousnesses and how uh, it's kind of a better idea for humanity and little life on the planet if we stem from the consciousness of the right brain and use the left brain skill sets and those characters to perform, but we're based on the value structure of the right hemisphere as opposed to what we currently have going on which we are the left brain consciousness. We're all about me and mine and, and how do I get more and, and, and there's a hierarchy and I need to get above you and I need to have more than you and, and all of that and, and then have skills of the right, which may or may, it may or may not even uh, take a value. Um, but they're two very different ways of experiencing life as it comes in. Yeah, and and none of us are really aware of this. This to me, this is the stuff that we get. Like, well, God, where did you write about it in the book? You're you're it, at some point you were becoming aware that you could even be aware of something. I, I forget which scene it was, but that that to be reminded. Oh yeah, you can do that. So yeah. to be reminded that hey, that part of you that you believe to be lesser than or weak. That that part of you that the culture says uh, don't don't do that, you know, because of course if everybody's going to measure your you know value and self worth over how you show up and how charismatic or socially aware or how much money you got or how smart you are or what degrees you got, again that that is reinforced in the culture all the time. But what we do is we discount those creative parts of us, those more intuitive parts, and and. I had this insight when I was talking to a fellow named Mark Winborn. He's a Jungian analyst, and we were talking about reverie. You know, as a psycho, as a psychotherapist, sitting with somebody and actually paying attention to the images, to the, like the movie scenes and the 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 weird random, I just say images that seemingly have nothing to do with what's going on in the conversation, except everything to do with what's going on in the conversation. So much, of, so much of what psychotherapists today that don't look at something like Reverie learn is that they, that's, that's stuff to be pushed outside of one's awareness. You're not supposed to talk about the you know, movie scene that you've got in your mind necessarily. Um, right. And what he's saying is that, well, wait a second, maybe you want to, maybe that movie scene is like, uh, is intense and it's mm -hmm. dominant, you know, something dominant, dominating is happening. And so maybe you use that piece with, the, with your patient where you say, I mean, it's as if you feel really dominated right now. And they go, yeah, I do feel really dominated. But so that, that's back to your close, the, the, the kind of closed or what I was calling a closed system where you're, where you're beginning to be more inclusive of 
what the mind is doing, because what we've done is called dreams, random firings of the neurons, and they should be kind of written off rather than listened to. And all this material that gets written out seems to be the material of the right brain. It is. It's it's the bigger picture, but it's not being written out. It's just not being focused on. And we have to have it because that's the information streaming in and coming into the amygdala to ask the question, am I safe? And that's the bottom line job of that amygdala. It is first off for real processing of the information coming in from the external world is based on the information of coming in in this moment, am I safe? because I can be dead like that because I'm a biological system. Right. So we feel safe when enough of the information coming in feels familiar. And information that feels familiar, we can kind of push to the side. We can turn our amygdala stays calm, our hippocampi right next to them turn on, and then we're capable of learning and memorizing new information and functioning like this. But we are on peripheral navigation the whole time. Home security is turned on. Well, I, yeah, I want an immune system, and I want I want home security on. I, yeah. it's, it's just when home security starts to take over my inner world, and I become a police exactly. state inside. Well, I think that's called anxiety and the whole, whole cortisol stress circuitry. And oh my God, you know, isn't that a whole nother subject? Yes. Well, and, and Jill, how long do you have? I don't want to go take okay. advantage. Okay, good. I gave you 15 more minutes. Is perfect. That right? That's perfect, actually. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so when when I when I turn that thing when I you know quote turn that thing inward on myself, and and the same principles I, I I'm interested in this idea the same principles that are used by the quote left you know in the outer world are starting to be used by the left in the inner world and any kind of creative, inspirational, connected. Um, uh, I don't know what else we could use there, but that gets pushed away in service to uh, linear thinking, serial processing, production-oriented, how can I measure myself in the culture? And uh, of course, this is the culture that I'm certainly a part of. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I can just imagine that you know, an Aboriginal tribe doesn't necessarily have the same intensity i know that it shows up but not the same intensity have you have you ever done any business with people in brazil no well, it's a very different experience <laughs> well, if well, it happens it'll happen if it doesn't happen we'll make it happen later yes. it's amazing for me that has been my personal experience and it's like well, it's so <laughs> unusual you know, I mean, it's nice and I can work with it, but oh my, it is not the same. Yes. It's, it's, it's not. And there are different cultures that, that do things very differently. And, and it's, there are cultures that are much more right brained that, that it is more, well, say la vie, if it will be, it will be, we'll put it on the books and, and we'll get to it when we get to it. And if it happens, it's great. And, and if it happens, we'll love it. And if it doesn't happen, okay, well, we'll try again another time. And it's like, this is so not the way the U S does business. No, I mean, for me, if I, if I'm a minute late to get a patient downstairs, I say, I'm sorry, I'm late. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You live inside of, uh, you know, that left uh, thinking brain knows how to be punctual. Yes. And um, it's a priority. Yeah. It yes. needs to do that. 
Because if it doesn't, the left emotional brain starts making up all kinds of stories about, well, he doesn't even care about me enough to show up on time. Right. You know? Left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I, the question I wanted to circle back to is, um, you, have an ex you have an experience and you're an expert. And your experience is subjective, which I would imagine sets you up to be a pretty sought out expert, not just by everybody else, I'm talking about by other experts. And you said something earlier that I guess in line with this cultural kind of tending that we're doing, I bet in the academy, there are people who share things with you that they can't write about. <laughs> they can't talk about because yeah. the academy doesn't necessarily sustain that kind of thinking. And yes. so it's almost like you're able, you're really given some degree of permission and authority to use words like energy and frequency and vibration because yeah. of the expertise you've had based upon your subjective experience. Yeah. Even though we all know those things, you know, exist. Yeah. So what's, where's the, what am I getting at? I think what I'm trying to get at is what, how do you critique what is your critique of the modern scientific approach to uh, how it measures, how it evaluates its methods? What, what does that entire academic arena get wrong? Um, something, um, well, as long as we're dealing with just the scientific method, it's great for uh, defining uh, structure mm -hmm. um, and and linear thinking. And so it does contribute to, um, to the base of knowledge. Um, but as far as uh, looking at the whole picture, I think that uh, functional imaging has opened up new possibilities um, to looking at the whole brain and actually acknowledging that there are cells in the right hemisphere that do certain things. At the same time, you know, the most interesting thing happened, in my opinion, um, back in the 70s when the uh, commissurotomy uh, split brain studies were, were done. And uh, Roger Sperry was a surgeon, and he's the one who uh, won the Nobel Prize for that. And, um, and he spoke even in his Nobel um, uh, speech about how uh, these two hemispheres have two very different ways of processing information and that the left brain um, is organized and structured and has its, its characteristics. And he felt that the right brain got a bad rap because the right brain, because it did not have language and it did not have a memory of the past, was perceived to be... Um, I don't remember what he called it, but essentially it's, it's a doofus. <laughs> and it was kind of the Dr. Jekyll and the Mr. Hyde, but yes. the right brain is just this dumb dude sitting over there um, without really any skill sets or gifts. And he didn't believe that that was true. And when the tests were going on and you were showing, uh, you know, there was an example of a commissurotomy patient where the man was trying to strangle his wife with one hand because of that character and the other hand was purposely trying to save his wife from his other character inside of himself. So it was, it's really clear. There are these beautiful studies. Um, there was a woman who would go grocery shopping and she could not decide what she was going to get because the two hemispheres wanted completely different types of cuisine. Mm -hmm. 
the same woman had a real hard time dressing in the morning because her two characters wanted to dress very differently from the other. So we, we had all this real beautiful, beautiful science done on these two hemispheres and the differences between them. And then all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden, I don't wanna I don't wanna be mean to anybody, but all of a sudden the concept that there are two of us inside of ourselves was washed under the carpet. Mm. And part of that was probably because popular science came in and took it over and said, oh, everything's right brain, everything's left brain. Um, the kind of school you go to, uh, uh, your careers, everything, you know, buy this for your right brain, buy this for your left brain. We went crazy. Um, I was there. We went crazy. And because of that, it the science had to go squash. It's like, this is totally out of control. Uh, based on a little bit of science, we're, we're now dealing with this incredible fad that's totally out of control. How do we bring it back into ourselves as one person? Because we had to do that. And so that's what um, Gazanica did. And he, they had two books, one where uh, it was all about the separation. And then the second book was really all about putting it all together back as a collective mm -hmm. whole. And then the concept died. And, um, and it didn't die inside of me, especially after I had that stroke. And when I became so clear that I was perfect and whole and beautiful. I was a whole person. I could be called brain damaged by neurologists who needed to call me brain damaged. And I did have damage and trauma in my brain. But that's also a group of neurologists who are fixated in the concept that the brain is born with a group of cells and it's never going to change. And that's antiquated thinking. And modern day thinking is exactly what happened inside of my brain is I was capable of neuroplasticity. I was capable of growing some new groups of cells inside of my brain, especially in the traumatized area that could take over the function of the cells that have died. And there is neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to cells to rewire themselves and who's communicating with whom in order to take on more complicated function. So I am a living example of the latter, and I live in a world where neurogenesis, the ability to create new neurons, and neuroplasticity, the ability for that circuit to rearrange itself for higher levels of function, I'm living proof of that. And I can put my brain up against anybody. I'd be, I don't want to throw that out because I don't want to study statistics again, but I could <laughs> relearn sophisticated statistics again if I chose to do so. So I don't look at myself as brain damaged. I look at myself as a woman who uh, had a neuro, a, a good solid neuroanatomical training and how the cells work and how they're wired. I lost half my hemisphere, uh, half, half my brain, one hemisphere. I got to know intimately what my other hemisphere was capable of doing. And then in order to go through the process of recovery, I had to go over and figure out how to activate those circuits again in order to get my brain functions back. And as those brain circuits came back online, certain personality or characteristics came back to me, and I'm really clear on who those are. And so for me, we have four very different characters inside of ourselves. We have the all four archetypes inside of each one of us, and we do have the power to choose who and how we want to be in the world. Yeah, that's, I think that's the essence, right? I hope, so 
I'm excited for your next book. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited that, that, you're, that you're jumping into that subject matter. It it's yeah. it certainly is an understandable extension of where you've started. It I, is. I, I am, and I know we in in the last few minutes we've got. I'm going to ask probably one of the more complex questions, <laughs> which is religious experience, and yeah. how how you make so because. In as we're talking about left and right, and I don't want to make the mistake of doing what everybody did, where we just kind of the definitive characters are left and right, and we're able to kind of then right. soothe those in particular ways. I, yeah. I it seems that a lot of religious experience, somebody has a quote mystical experience, something that is yeah. unified field, um, you know, the liquid self, the 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 expansion of consciousness, the inclusion of all beings, love. And, uh, and, and, and all related, uh, you know, artistic and creative and emotionally toned characteristics. And, and then all of a sudden, we've got to understand that, we've got to conceptualize that experience in some more tangible way. And so then we get these dogmas or denominations or different modes of making sense of this pretty powerful experience. Does, right. Is what I'm saying, is that tracking with how you're viewing these things? Yeah. Yeah. So, so think about, about, uh, any religion has a dogma. It's got a story and it's a story that gets told over and over again and people hook into the story and that's all left brain. I mean, left brain is language. Left brain is the storyteller. Left brain, uh, creates, okay, here's, here's the guideline from which, um, we get. And, and I think I'm, I, I, I'm not for sure, but I think, just about every religion, the ultimate goal is to get out of the dogma, the story of the left hemisphere, into the experiential. Prayer is a repetition of our mindset that we purposely choose through our left brain. We say a prayer, we repeat a mantra, we're preoccupying that circuitry of that left hemisphere language centers, which is so loud in our heads, right? So we're preoccupying that and hook that into a certain loop on a certain storyline that leads us into, it kind of goes on automatic, where it allows us to shift into the feeling of feeling connected to something beyond those tools, but those are the tools that get us into the right hemisphere consciousness, which that right thinking cognitive tissue is is where we're going to go if we're going to um, have an experience with psilocybin mushrooms, if mm. we're going to have an experience with LSD. It's waking up the neurocircuitry of that hemisphere, allowing us to feel the expansiveness by shutting down the group of cells in that left parietal region that define the boundaries of where I am and where I begin, which you have to be able to get out of the self in order to have that, uh, that, that experience. Same thing with near death experience. I mean, with near death, and right. I don't have an opinion about what happens after we die because I didn't die. I stayed, uh, I stayed tethered energetically mm -hmm. in the biological matrix of my body and brain. Um, so, so I don't know when it when it cuts what the experience will be. All I know is what my experience was when I was as disconnected from my left brain abilities as, as I could possibly ever want to get and still be alive. So in, in wrapping things up, uh, first of all, thank you for your time. This is, uh, 
energizing to say the least. I'm, I'm curious about how you what you would recommend to folks as far as practices. What what kind of practices can we do to to uh, attend to this dynamic that so definitely shows up? So um, I think first of all, pay, the first thing anybody has to do is pay attention to what's it like to feel like inside of your, your your what does it feel like to be inside of you, and recognize when you feel differently. So let's say you're a biz you're being your business self, and that that's a character inside of you. Um, give that part of you a name. Be that part. Uh, you know what it feels like when you get unhappy and critical, and you feel like you said life wasn't fair. Somebody, you know, we all know what that part of ourselves feels like. We know what it feels like when we're happy and we're we're playful and we're in the present moment experience. And some of us, many of us, know what it feels like to feel connected to the bigger picture of what we are. So just the awareness that we have these groups of cells, we're biologically these different groups of cells that result in these different feelings or characters inside of ourselves. And boy, I would go into more detail on that in a second, but I just really, you're going to have to wait because my publisher would shit. There we go. All right. Well, good. Well, then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dot, dot, dot and say to be continued. Yeah, let's do it again. I'd love that, Jill. This is so fantastic. Thank let's you. Let's do for, it again. Uh, this is generous and it's lovely. And I just love seeing your face and talking to you after reading your book. Well, I appreciate it because you're, you know, you explore things in a lot of different dimensions. And it was like, yeah, I want to be a part of that conversation. It's a great conversation. Well, yeah. thanks for, because uh, sometimes I think my, uh, my tendencies can be a lot for people to handle, but I, I appreciate I you seeing the, uh, the mystery and the madness. I love it. I'm truly grateful. And I look forward to the next time. I'm going to, Jill, I'm going to include information for, um, you know, contact your website, all that stuff. If there's anything else you'd like me to include, just send me an email and I'll, I'll include it in the conversation. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And it's been great. And seriously, next time, next year, uh, I'm hoping to have this book come out in 2021 in the spring. And boy, can I say anything I want to say once it's out? In the world. Oh, you're on. I can't wait for it. Because then you'll get more of the how to's <laughs> and it's like, that's important. How, how do I do that? Yeah. Well, your publisher is, uh, I hope, sitting there going, oh, she almost, almost, but not quite. Good. <laughs> that was good. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks again, Jill. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.